0: If it's happening now, we're talking about it. This is Hamilton today with Scott Thompson on nine hundred CHML.
1: Hey, it's Hamilton today. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Tom McKay is on the board. Will booking the guests in the new Zoom Dinah Weeks and Dave O'Dard. I would say something about this week's municipal election here, but the majority of you wouldn't know what I meant. Here's Scott Thompson. He
0: didn't sound healthy. Get away from me. Put a mask on. Uh, good afternoon. It is 308. Everyone here except Jerry Lee. Uh, We lost Jerry Lee today. Jerry Lee Lewis, uh, pioneer rock and roller at the age of 87. The killer. And, um, you know, the million million dollar quartz head at Sun Records was Carl Perkins, uh, Elvis Presley, Johnny Cash and Jerry Lee Lewis. And everybody thought Jerry Lee would be like the first one down (laughs) just because of the lifestyle that he led. Uh, He was uh, he was the killer. So uh, we'll talk about that coming up a little later on. Uh, But yeah, rock and roll fans, uh, we lose another one as uh, Jerry Lee uh, Lewis has passed away at the age of 87. We'll talk about that coming up a little later on. We've been talking a lot uh, in the last little while about inflation, specifically around food prices and what that has meant for the average Canadian families, for all Canadian families uh, over the last little while. Now, all of a sudden, you know, it's coming up this weekend and uh, I just looked at the front door and we seem to be in good supply. Now here, You know, this is something that's interesting. Even though food prices are high, we still have the same amount of boxes out front, uh, sitting next to the front door. Here's the other thing. Uh, I'm in an older neighborhood, so the, you know, the kids have kind of grown up and gone away, so there's not as many kids, yet we're still buying as much candy. So I'm not sure how all of this works or how what we're feeling with food inflation is going to affect Halloween. Let's talk about that and other bigger fish to fry. Uh, Dr. Sylvan Charlebaugh is with us and Professor of Food Distribution and Policy, Director of the Agri-Foods Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Sylvan, thank you so much for the time. I hope you're well. I see you on TV a lot these days. You're a busy guy.
2: Well, the cost of living is going up and people want to know why. (laughs) So we try to get some answers.
0: Let's start with this: your thoughts on the Competition Bureau looking into uh, pricing and such. What is this? Is it smoke and mirrors? Can we find anything out here?
2: Don't expect any changes. Uh, I know a lot of people are thinking, "Oh, we're finally going to see some changes, more competition." No. Uh, so they'll they'll uh, they'll finish their study, quote unquote, uh, in June of twenty twenty three. My my take on this is that this is very much uh, more about the bureau itself than the industry. Uh, I think I think when you actually look at the mandate, when you look at uh, what is being proposed as a study, uh, they're going to be benchmarking the, the bureau with other uh, countries. What's going on elsewhere? They'll be looking at the industry. Yes, uh, they'll be looking at perhaps processing, but. Generally speaking, I think that they'll be looking at best practices. And, and let me give you an example: the bread price fixing scheme uh, was uh, was declared, I guess, made public uh, in 2017. The investigation really started in 2015. It's still ongoing today, seven years after. Meanwhile, in the U.S., you have Congress pointing fingers at meat packers back in the fall. Within months. Within months, you saw Packers writing checks to compensate consumers. GBS one actually just wrote a check for fifty-six million dollars U.S. to compensate consumers, uh, avoiding a lawsuit. So you can see that the, the approach is much more forceful uh, than than in Canada.
0: Why is that? Uh, just something that uh, we uh, bigger down there draws more attention to it. And and, and how difficult is this to prove?
2: Uh, it is difficult to prove, but my because it is difficult to pool, uh, prove, you need politics to work with regulators, and that's exactly what's going on in the U.S. So you have regulators looking into uh, anti-competition behavior, and uh, and also the White House being vocal and 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 getting very involved. So. While the topic is getting politicized, you also have regulators uh, getting the support from uh, from lawmakers and and that's really the main difference. so Jagman's thing uh, in my view, is trying to Americanize <laughs> the uh, the approach we have in Canada when it comes to competition. Uh, I think that's what he has in mind, but he doesn't have uh, what he needs from the competition bureau right now, which is why the study is important.
0: Uh, we remember uh, a few days ago, uh, Loblaws came out and said they were freezing prices on no-name products till yeah. January, the end of January next year, I believe. Uh, and then Metro came out and said, "Well, we do all that anyway." Um, what does that say? And Not why exactly. haven't? And what? And yeah. what? Why haven't other grocers responded to this?
2: Well, a lot of people were confused by the whole thing. The idea of, uh, was Metro basically wanted to undermine Loblaw's campaign. That's basically what happened. What, what Metro was really saying is that there are blackout periods. Between November and February, grocers tend to refuse price increases from November to February because it's very busy in grocery stores. So what we're talking about, Metro was talking about a price freeze up, the food chain, not at retail.
3: Mm.
2: But when the statement came out and I saw it, uh, a couple of uh, reporters actually sent me this statement. It basically was suggesting that there was collusion at retail. And uh, many people actually believe, okay, so Loblaw's freezing prices, they all do it at the same time, big deal. Uh, Actually, it is a big deal, it's illegal. (laughs) So (laughs) Loblaw is still the only grocer uh, which has actually and prices so far in Canada. Metro has not.
0: So, what do you think is going to come out of this probe? Because it seemed to come up after this sort of surfaced.
2: The probe from the bureau, you mean? Yes, oh, from yes. Because there's also Parliament looking into this. This is that Parliament is actually going to be conducting an investigation they will be uh, asking many, many uh, food execs to show up in Ottawa to answer questions. So that's an investigation that was decided two weeks ago. And this, and this is going back to my point about politics not being connected with regulars. That's exactly the point I'm making. you got Parliament going with an investigation while the Bureau just announced they're doing a study, and both aren't talking to each other.
0: Mm, wow. <laughs> it's yeah, not like we beautiful. haven't it's not like we it's not like we haven't heard of that before, Sylvan. Uh, so uh, cheap uh, cheap Halloween candy is there a way to do this?
2: Absolutely. Buy buy candy you would eat yourself. No leftovers. <laughs> That's the idea here. Tell us, people, let's treat ourselves. Let's actually go out and buy candy for the kids, but at the end of the day, everyone loves candy, so make sure you buy something you love and enjoy.
0: All right, and it's always cheaper the more you buy, right? That's another way to look at it.
2: Well, I mean, leftovers are pretty costly. Why would you want leftovers? Buy if, <laughs> if you're into chocolate, buy chocolate. If you're into candy corn, that's go for it. Go crazy. <laughs>
0: Dr. Sylvain Charlebaugh with us, Professor of Food Distribution and Policy and the Director of the Agri-Food Analytics Lab at Dalhousie University. Thank you so much for your time, Have, a, have and Happy Halloween. Enjoy, enjoy the front
2: door. Happy, Happy Halloween. <laughs>
0: we've talked about uh, interest rates going up this week and the sad part is we know that they are probably going to go up most likely. Well, they said they weren't going to go up again uh, one more time. So how do you prepare for this sort of thing? You know that it's coming. It's obviously got to the point where uh, it has gone up so extensively that everybody is feeling the pinch here uh, and it's, it's being reflected in, in uh, pretty much every category and wherever you are. So let's bring in Don Fox, executive financial consultant with the Fox group, IG, Private Wealth Management, planning your financial future with him and I uh, Saturday mornings at 8 a.m., and today he's dressed up as a financial planner. Normally, he it, it, Halloween's the only time he dresses up as a financial planner. Every <laughs> Every other day, it's some sort of wacky costume. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, uh, how you doing? Good to hear from you. Uh, what, uh, your thoughts on, you know, people are starting to feel this. People are really uh, noticing the pinch, not only of inflation, but now higher interest rates going up. We know they are going to go up again. What do you do if you're the average Canadian here?
4: Well, it's it seems appropriate that Halloween is around the corner. We're talking about this, Scott, because, yeah, yeah this, uh, this type of rise is scary. Um, people don't know where, where the end is. And particularly if they have variable rate um, mortgages or lines of credit that go up with the interest rates as they go up. So immediately get reflected in in what they're paying. So, yeah, it could be scary. Uh, There is, I guess, a little bit of good news this week. It only went up a half percent instead of three quarters. So I guess you could call that good news. But it does show signs that perhaps that there'll be less increases and we may have actually finally broke the backs of inflation or it seems to be heading that direction at least, so that's good news.
0: You talked about mortgage rates, variable and fixed, and obviously this is an ongoing debate. Uh, if you're one of those people where something's coming due now, uh, or maybe you're towards the end, do you do you jump into something like that, or do you ride it out?
4: Yeah, that's always a crystal ball. You know, we we're you yeah. know looking at a five year mortgage. You know, if it was two percent in January or you've been paying two percent, all of a sudden it's now five and a half percent. You know, on a half a million dollar mortgage. That's almost a thousand dollars per month that it will go up. So it's not like it's a secret because you, you know, you probably been noticed, knew this was coming, and you you may have had to have made some adjustments to your lifestyle beforehand to get ready for it. But yeah, it's never something anybody wants to do. But, uh, you know, you should never be right to the eyebrows, if you will. Um, in terms of your mortgage payments but a lot of people were and it was the only way they can get into a house so it's one it's nice for me nice for me to say yes you shouldn't get this much um, you know behind the eight ball but you know it's it's a different story if you're just trying to get your first house
0: so what is the best way to prepare for this what could be an ongoing storm because you know as soon as people hear this immediately they tighten up their pockets and uh, their butt cheeks and they don't buy anything
4: <laughs> well, that's actually what the whole government's hoping people will do. They want to cool off the economy, and that is exactly what, if everybody on mass stops buying as much, that cools down the economy, it decreases inflation, and then finally, then the interest rates will stop going up. And you're starting to see inflation like, you know, one thing for the you know CPI, the Consumer Price Index, to say it's at 6.9%, but... You know, Halloween candy right around the corner on average is going to be going up about 13% from last year. And so for those people that on average spend about $30, uh, we'll be spending about $30 per household this year versus $25 last year, about a $5 increase. You know, $5 on its own doesn't sound like a lot, but you multiply that by every time you go to the grocery store, and it really does add up.
0: Oh, we talked to Dr. Sylvain Charlebois uh, from Dalhousie University, and, he, and I asked him what's the best way to save on Halloween candy. And he said, uh, buy the stuff you love. There way, that way there's never any leftovers or stuff to throw out.
4: <laughs> That's a good point. And, uh, you know, it's kind of funny. I was just looking online. You know, Walmart, for example, um, you know, to buy this M&M Snickers in that bag, it's up uh, $2.24 to sixteen ninety eight. That's a 15% increase. Some people use Amazon. And for their Hershey packets, up $2.01 to $10.99, which is a 22% increase from last year. So, you know, what? it's one, like, I, I had a client actually go through every, they go through every month what they're spending on groceries. And she works it out, then divides by the number of days. And it's, and her inflation rate has gone up 13.5% so far this year on the normal stuff that she buys. Wow.
0: Wow. <laughs> Sooner or later, you got to stop doing that. So it'll hurt the wallet, but it might help your waistline a bit. That's one way to look at it.
4: <laughs> I guess that is one way. But yes, all these things do take a toll. It's not like wages are going up as fa- as fast as, in- as inflation. And they really hope to burst this bubble of inflation because it is, you know, the, where there's food prices or, or you know, the gas prices talking about going back over $2 a, a liter again, they all have an effect. And so that means, you know, less people will travel, less people go to restaurants. It's You end up having to do the must-dos rather than the I'd like to do type of things.
0: It's so funny because coming out of the uh, pandemic or wherever we are in the in the pandemic, that even just saying that opens up debate. Uh, everybody couldn't wait to get outside. Everybody couldn't wait to get into restaurants and, and, and start doing the things that we were doing before. We saw travel over the summer go through the roof, the issues... The airports yeah. and passport offices and such. And now it's like the pendulum swung all the way back again. It's, it's like all of a sudden, you notice, woo, everything's getting really expensive. The restaurants are getting expensive. And now everybody's going in the, you know, in the other direction.
4: Yeah, they're starting to take shelter again because they can't really do They don't want to spend that much more money. And you know what? The government did the right things on throwing money at the issue. And they increased the Canadian money supply by about 30% over the course of the pandemic. Now, the downside of that is what we're dealing with now is the inflationary factors of throwing that much money in the economy in a very short period of time. It will flow through. It will get better. And and when they increase interest rates, it's not a knee jerk. It doesn't affect inflation immediately. But it usually takes about six months. And we're starting to finally see that. So I'm very optimistic. I feel like, you know, we're getting closer to the end now than we were. That's for sure. And it is having some effect on, you know, you're seeing with house prices. Um, they're dropping. You're seeing just demand in a lot of things. You know where there is was over uh, overindulgence, if you will. Um, those prices are dropped, and that's a good that's a good news story for the inflationary issues that we're dealing with now.
0: So many have said, including yourself, that we are close to the peak if we aren't there now. Uh, that, that being said, you, you have to wonder where things settle. Cause usually when they settle, they never, it's like when anything goes up, it might go up, uh, 10 cents and then it settles back down, but it only settles back down maybe a couple of cents. Uh, how do you think this is all going to shake down?
4: Well, you know, it's always supply and demand. You know, that's what inflation is, and there's other th- factors. Only you know, the U- Ukraine war is affecting food prices too, because you know you're re- re- you're reducing supply. Yeah. And so now this, you know, people still want to, you know, have bread, and so the cost of wheat, etc., has gone up because of, you know, that supplier is no, le- uh, isn't there anymore, or or a lot less of that, and so it's affecting the prices in the grocery stores, and then things such as uh, even uh, Hurricane Ian affecting, say, orange crops. Yeah. Well, now, you know, all these things, they all have an effect because that's a supply issue. Now, other ones, such as what we're dealing with, are with a lot of money thrown into the economy. Well, that's something that can be addressed through through, uh, increasing interest rates, and that's what they've done there. We can't really do too much about the hurricanes and so forth, but we can look after the core inflation items by increasing interest rates.
0: So uh, save, don't spend, the message right now.
4: Well, on the good point, savings actually paying some money right now. You're actually getting interest in a lot of investments. You know, um, our cash account is currently paying 3.65 as a daily interest cash account. That you know, there's, you're not even locking it in. The GIC rates are paying higher, so you're actually getting paid to leave money. Don't leave it in your bank account, folks, because they're still paying zero. But if you do have excess money and you say, you know what, uh, I may need it in six months, might as well put it in something, and you're going to get a reasonably good rate of return. So yes, on that point, saving does actually pay off right now.
0: All right, time to go to the mattress. Uh, Don Fox (laughs) with us, Executive Financial Consultant, Fox Group, uh, IG Private Wealth Management. Make sure you're listening uh, Saturday morning for planning your financial future. Don, have a great weekend. Thanks so much. We'll chat tomorrow.
4: Yeah, you too, Scott. Thank you.
0: We all remember the Queen's funeral and um, uh, the pomp and circumstance, and it was like a... I think it was like a six-month affair, it seemed like at times. Uh, and, of course, uh, lots of dignitaries, officials there from all over the world. Uh, seven-year reign, that sort of thing, very historic. Uh, but now we're starting to find well, the bills coming in for uh, the delegation, uh, the Canadian delegation that went. And somebody and we don't know who, spent $6,000 per night for a hotel room during Queen Elizabeth's funeral. Uh, 6000 bucks per night. I'm thinking, well, maybe it was like a suite, and they were all bunking together. You know, you share the kitchenette, that sort of thing. Uh, but I don't think that's the case. Let's bring in Franco Terrazano, Canadian Taxpayers Federation Federal Director, and he is with us now. Franco, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. Hey, I am. How are you? I'm doing pretty good. I'd be better if I'd sitting in if I was sitting <laughs> yeah. in a six thousand dollar per night hotel room. I wonder what that looks like. Uh, so, what do we know about this story? What do we know about this this hotel room?
1: Well, we know the total cost. Somebody in the government decided to bill taxpayers for a six thousand dollar per night hotel room in the Corinthia Hotel. So, this is one of the, uh, maybe one of the, if not the most luxurious hotels in in all of London, England. Um, You know, the Toronto Sun originally broke the story that the hotel costs in total for the trip to the Queen's funeral cost taxpayers about four hundred thousand dollars. You know, that's a huge bill. But I think the most eye popping part of this whole tab is that there was one room that was booked for six thousand dollars per night for five nights. So one room is costing taxpayers thirty thousand dollars and the government doesn't want to tell us who it is.
0: Uh, so, uh, was that the one where the, uh, same hotel where the prime minister was singing?
1: Yes. yep, that's it. And, and, you know, it, this is called the river suite, right? And, and the Corinthia hotel, uh, talks about the river suite. Uh, it has apparently, it comes with a complimentary, uh, butler. So this is extremely fancy. And, you know, the Toronto sun, the folks who broke the story originally, uh, they did a bunch of digging into this because look, nobody expects the prime minister to be staying at, uh, a day's in. When traveling abroad. Yeah. But yeah, apparently, yeah. this was the most expensive five-star hotel in the whole area in downtown London. So we could have saved money by putting the prime minister up in the four seasons, in the Savoy, in the Shangri-La. So it's not like we're saying, hey, stay in a day's in, but there were so many more options that would have saved taxpayers money. And you know, I can't believe I have to say this. But when you got families at home who are struggling to put food on the table, maybe don't bill us taxpayers for a $6,000 per night hotel room.
0: And we know it wasn't the governor general. Is that accurate?
1: That is accurate. Absolutely. Rideau Hall is like, it wasn't us. It wasn't us. So look, we don't know exactly who it is. The government won't say. But I think the odds on favorite here is that it was Prime Minister Justin Trudeau.
0: Okay, I'm going to play devil's advocate here, Franco. What what, what if, you know, uh, he's like doing business up there, he's entertaining people up there, dignitaries, what have you. It's kind of a
1: work in space. Uh, You couldn't do that the Four Seasons? You couldn't (laughs) find somebody, you know what I mean? Like, this is how crazy it is that we could have saved money if it was done at the Four Seasons, if it was done at the Savoy, the Shangri-La. No, no, come on, come on. Uh, I I know you're just playing devil's advocate, but $6,000 per night? hotel room that comes with a complimentary butler service. No, no, no. That is way too crazy. And you know what? It, it is It is not the only story of waste that we're hearing recently, is it? Right. Many, many other stories. We recently heard that the governor general and her entourage spent nearly $100,000 on airplane food during a week-long trip to the Middle East. Uh, we just found out that the Uh, Prime Minister's household food expenses are costing taxpayers $55,000 a year. And, of course, the $54 million Arrive Can app debacle. So we've heard story after story after story of the government wasting our taxpayers' dollars.
0: So will we ever find out who was staying in the $6,000 a night room? What about the hotel? Anybody ask them? (laughs)
1: Yeah, yeah, maybe we should call them up and, and, and maybe they'll have an easier time giving us Canadian taxpayers a, a better answer than what the government is doing. You know, uh, to be fair, I do think eventually it, it will be found out. You know, uh, we're putting in a ton of A tips to try to find this. I'm sure uh, Mr. Brian Lilly at the Toronto Sun, who broke this story, has put in a ton of A tips. So, you know what? Eventually, I'm sure that this will come out that the public will find out who saw who stayed in the $6,000 per night hotel room I think right now the Trudeau government the prime minister did we lose Franco no I'm right here sorry
0: yeah I got you back go ahead keep going
1: so all that I was saying is that I think it's just the prime minister's office and the government really just trying to stall right now trying to figure out how are they going to explain this to the public
0: is this one of those cases, and again, I'm just asking the, the questions here, Franco, where, you know what, the Queen's in town. It's like when the Super Bowl is here, all the rates go up by, uh, you, you know, go up three or four yeah. times. Is that is that's, that worth
1: it? You know what, that's a really good question. And and when I first saw the headline, uh, that's the first thing that I thought. But again, I, I got to give kudos to the Toronto Sun. They did their due diligence. They've been looking at the different rates. And the the rates seem to be the same now or very similar to what was happening uh, when the queen's funeral was in ta- or when the queen's funeral was happening. So it doesn't appear like there was just the surge mm. in prices during that time. But that was a good question. That's the first thing that came to my mind. And it looks like the Toronto sun did due diligence answering that question.
0: Franco Terrazano with his Canadian taxpayers, Federation federal director who stayed in the $6,000 per night hotel room during the course of the queen Elizabeth uh, funeral. Uh, Franco, as always, thanks for the time. Be well.
1: Hey, thanks, and have a great weekend. If Scott Thompson isn't satisfied with
0: an answer, he'll delve into the
1: issue until he is.
0: You're listening to Hamilton Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's News, today's talk. 900 CHML. Jerry Lee Lewis passing away at age 87, the last one in the Million Dollar Quartet, and considering... Uh, They called him Killer. Uh, Most thought he would be one of the first ones to go and not outlive uh, uh, a lot of them of his era. Let's bring in Alan Cross, host of the Ongoing History of New Music. Alan, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well.
5: Yes, so far it's Friday. It's good.
0: You know, I I text this to my daughter who's 20 years old. She said, I'm crying. <laughs> so, I, I'm sure she did that with tongue in cheek. But Snow, I mean, uh, obviously made an impact in her. She listens to the music, uh, of course, that's on in the house. And sometimes that's the case because uh, obviously the spectrum goes from literally one end to the other. But your thoughts on this and the fact that the killer uh, outlived a lot of them.
5: He did of uh, all the originals. Uh, that would be Johnny Cash and Chuck Berry and Little Richard and Carl Perkins and Fats Domino. He was the last one to go, which uh, which is rather interesting. Like you say, he was called the killer. And he did leave um, – well, he left behind a very colorful life. I mean, it seemed that a lot of people around him uh, died while yeah. he managed to keep going. A couple of wives, a son um, there have been some some rather interesting tragedies in his life but but yeah i mean we have to think about this guy as, as being one of the pioneers of rock and roll and uh one of the most influential people of the the 1950s and early 1960s and uh also one of the original inductees into the rock and roll hall of fame
0: Uh, Obviously, um, you know, we remember the day. Well, we don't remember, but we hear about them. The days where, uh, you know, the Ed Sullivan Show, Elvis and such. uh, Obviously, this is the same era, same studio, same uh, Sam Phillips and such. But Elvis seemed a little bit more refined, as wild as he was. Uh, It seemed that Jerry Lee was just a little bit over a little bit more over the edge than Elvis, just a little less tame.
5: I wonder if it had anything to do with management. Um, Elvis was kept in line by Colonel Tom Parker and did what the Colonel told him to do. Jerry wasn't that way at all. He was uh, he was wild. Uh, he and, 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 Cl- and um, Little Richard were, yeah. were among the most wild of those early performers. And remember, we got to go back to the way things were in 55, 56, 57, 58. Rock and roll was still very, very brand new. A lot of people thought it was just a fad And that these louts, these uncouth people setting pianos on fire and playing, standing up and that sort of thing, where it was just a fad. It was going to go away. But uh, it wasn't until much later that we realized that something special was happening. You know, you talk about the Million Dollar Quartet. I mean, these were just a bunch of guys, young guys who had been hanging around some Studios. And somebody decided that, yeah, let's have a jam and let's record this jam. And uh, it's only later when all these guys got really, really famous that we realized, holy crap, did that actually happen?
0: Uh, the difference between Elvis and Jerry Lee, um, Elvis, uh, didn't do his own music, uh, didn't write his own songs. Whereas, and we saw this in, in his, uh, in his biopic, Jerry Lee's, that he actually got into the music. He actually was influenced by black rhythm and blues and the country swing of the day and, and was more into creating the sound.
5: Yeah, he was. There were a couple of blues players and a couple of boogie woogie players that, uh, from the 1930s and 1940s, that he really, really liked, and what he did was was emulate what they did, and then took it to a, another level. Um, and and so much of Jerry Lee Lewis is is found in his left hand, the way he pounded that left hand side, as the right hand went and did all kinds of interesting things on that side of the keyboard. So he uh, he took a style that had been nascent, um, and 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 blew it up into well, he blew it up into rock and roll, really.
0: And it's all good until you marry your 13-year-old cousin, but um, it's a different time, a different place, certainly a different place uh, uh, then and there than it is now. But this was a incredibly controversial situation at the time, wasn't it?
5: Yeah, Myra, first cousin, once removed the daughter of the bass player in his band. Uh, she was 13 years old at the time. They tried to keep that secret, but then Jerry Lee went on a uh, tour to the UK and uh, the the uh, British press found out about it, blew the story up. You know, rightly so. I mean, thirteen years old, and uh, then that's bad coverage. Uh, followed him to the United States, where it basically destroyed his career for a number of years. He had been paid being paid uh, you know ten thousand dollars or more a night, which is a huge amount of money back in those days. And he went from playing uh, for for that kind of cash to maybe if he could get the gig, two hundred and fifty dollars a night. And you know, you talking about being a different time. He was married for the first time in 1952 when he was 14. Yeah. So you know, he didn't necessarily see anything wrong with it because I did it. So so what's 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 the problem? You you know, uh, there, there are some things you should do, and maybe some things you shouldn't
0: so uh, any thought to if that controversy hadn't happened i mean we know that that era of rock and roll played its five-year cycle sort of speak and then went off with the you know was gone with the british invasion and such what what do you think would have happened had there not been that controversy
5: a good good question uh he may have gone the same direction as as fats domino and um little richard in that he would have peaked and not really had any place to go. I mean, by 1963, 64, he might have been an oldies act. Yeah, uh, You know, Little Richard had had discovered God and, and became a preacher and uh, Buddy Holly was dead. Uh, who else was there? Um, Fats Domino, you know, he came back and had the twist. Actually, he didn't come back. He actually uh, had his peak in the early 1960s. I, I think, again, it comes back to, to management. Who did he have in charge of his career and how could that manager may have directed things through the, you know, after the Beatles appeared on Ed Sullivan in, in February of 1964. It's, it's, a, it's a good thought experiment. Could he have modernized or, or might he have gone uh, over to the countryside a lot earlier?
0: Yeah, exactly. And being inducted into their uh, music hall of fame. Alan Cross with us, host of the ongoing history of new music. Jerry Lee Lewis passing away at the age of 87. His uh, career and his influence on rock and roll in the old, in the uh, early days. Alan, as always, thanks for the time. Be well. You're welcome. See ya. There was lots of chatter and has been for the last little while. Uh, you know, it gets you through the uh, latter stages of a global pandemic when Elon Musk is out buying things, especially when it's Twitter, especially when he overpaid for it, apparently. Well, um, it, it, it seems to be his now. Uh, he's taken it home. So <laughs> what does that mean? Uh, let's bring in Carmi Levy, technology analyst and journalist. He's with us now. Carmi, thanks for the time. I hope you're well. I am. Great to be here, Scott. So it's official now, it's over. So is the world coming to an end? What's happening now?
6: Yeah, so he's written the big check. He has shown up at headquarters. He has brought the the sink with him. He (laughs) hopes that we should let that sink in, ha ha. Uh, And then just as quickly, he was walking the four top C-level executives, including the CEO, out the door. Uh, So he's moving quickly to kind of make it his, uh, to send that, but he's also trying to back off from some of the more, let's call them extreme things that he had been saying in the weeks and months leading up to this this deal, the closing of the deal. Um, he said some pretty hyperbolic things that frightened a lot of people and kind of drove a lot of concern about the future of Twitter under Elon Musk. And uh, so he was walking those back. He was uh, he, he posted a, an open letter to advertisers saying uh, Twitter will not become the hellscape that people think it will be, that they will want to advertise on the platform. They won't be scared away by extremism. Um, and so he's really trying to be a little bit more responsible than he has been in recent weeks and months. But again, this is Elon Musk. We never quite know what he's going to say or do next next uh and my fear is is that you know he might kind of wake up one day and just decide yeah today is the day that i'm just going to tweet whatever i want to uh and then we're right back into that cycle of uncertainty and so right now everyone holds their breath and just waits for whatever comes next from him so the deal has closed the check's been cashed is it official he overpaid for this I think so. I mean, obviously, I mean, if you look at the trajectory of the shares themselves, uh, the value went up close to the $54 strike price that he had uh, that he had offered back in April. Um, And so investors felt that the deal was going to be fairly close to or the deal was going to happen and that they were going to make out okay. So, you know, you know, the the street essentially said, yeah, you know, you paid a premium, but it's okay. Like you're getting you're getting fairly decent value almost doesn't matter whether he overpaid what matters is going forward is he going to be able to grow this company to the potential that it always had but never quite reached and is he going to be able to grow revenue and 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 that is a big unanswered question because as we know and as you and I have spoken about over the years Twitter literally defines unrealized potential. Uh, While Facebook and its various constellation of apps were getting 3 billion daily active users, Twitter barely cracks 300 million. And the reason being is because it's been such a toxic platform for so long that literally billions of people decided they don't want to be there. Either they quit Twitter entirely, or they never bothered signing up in the first place because they were afraid of the trolls, afraid of the extremists, afraid of the online abusers, the cyber bullies uh, who essentially had free reign on the platform. And so, uh, you know, will a Twitter under Elon Musk fix that? Not based on what he's been promising, where he's going to loosen the shackles, which will essentially make Twitter an even more abusive place to be. So uh, I'm not necessarily sure he has the, the will or the ability to fix that, what ails Twitter, not as a company, but as a business.
0: You talked about walking back some of the rhetoric that he had at the beginning of all of this. Does this mean that people that were banned are back on um, the Donald Trumps of the world? And I remember even before Donald Trump, I, I thought Twitter was on its way out. And because Trump was using it every hour, it kind of had a resurgence. I mean, what's Trump, what's Twitter like without Trump?
6: Yeah, we often said that, you know, one of the only reasons that most people stuck around on Twitter was to to just see what Donald Trump was up to. And that as soon as his account was uh, ultimately suspended, Twitter became a much less entertaining place. To a certain extent, that's true, um, because, you know, and I say that as an analyst and a journalist was that I I got a lot of work out of uh, tracking Donald Trump. And as soon as he disappeared, (laughs) Twitter became a lot relevant to my world and my work. Uh, and I know I'm not the only one, but at the same time, uh, I see it through my lens. But what about the average user? The The presence of people like Donald Trump and Kanye West and the fact that they can post unmitigated hatred and lies and conspiracy theories uh, means that everyone else gets drowned out. They consume all the oxygen in the room. And so, you know, while Donald Trump got a whole lot of attention because of his 80 plus million followers, What about the regular folks who just had a few hundred or a few thousand followers who weren't engaging on twitter to the degree that they could have or should have because they simply didn't want to be part of that universe that that accepted donald trump and kanye west as as proper and so i think we have to look at both sides of the equation and i think twitter as a platform for the rest of us doesn't quite work Uh, and the, the fact that elon musk richest man in the world has now just bought it reinforces that sentiment. And so if you were hoping that Twitter would become a kinder, gentler place, uh, because you're just an average user and you don't wanna be stalked or abused, um, I think you still may be looking for somewhere else to hang your social media hat. Is Kanye back on
0: Twitter? Did he say something about he was letting him back on? Did I hear that or am I making that up? He,
6: he hasn't, but it was widely understood that when Elon Musk was talking about unbanning and unsuspending accounts that had been that had been set aside because they violated the terms of use, that Kanye West was being included in that list of users that also included Mr. Trump. So, you know, I mean, the the fact of the matter is, is extremism extremism and, you know, outright lies uh, and misinformation and disinformation have no place online. And to equate freedom of speech, speech and freedom of expression um, and and moderating to uh, to stay within the terms of use, as a form of compromising freedom of speech, to me, is just a, it's just wrong. It's it's a disingenuous definition of freedom of speech and freedom of expression, and I think we need to move away from it. You and I have the right to move freely in society, to drive a car, but we don't have the right to exceed the speed limit, uh, drink and drive and pile our car deliberately into someone else. And so we know there are rules, and we know what happens when we, when we violate those rules. That needs to apply in social media, and it's something that Elon Musk, unfortunately, is going to learn the hard way.
0: So are we are users going to see any changes to Twitter? I mean what what can users expect in the next 6 months year?
6: Oh, I think Mr. Musk is going to move fairly quickly. I think we are going to see uh, a lot of banned uh, accounts come back. I think we're going to see the pace of new features uh, that were introduced recently on a test basis uh, for paying users, for example, the edit button, I think we're going to see those distributed more freely. In other words, you and I may not have to pay for these things anymore. They'll be available across the entire Twitter universe. So we'll see new features. We'll see a loosening of moderation. Um, And I I suspect he promised to address the bot issue to go after accounts that are not human, that are automated, uh, that are script-based. And so I would expect that those will be reined in. Um, But I'll I'll say this right now. If Mr. Musk does not address the online uh, bullying that has typified Twitter literally since day one, um, nothing else is going to matter because no one's going to want to join it and advertisers aren't going to want to pay for the privilege. So uh, we can expect to see a lot of change. But as far as the end users are concerned, it has to be the right kind of change. Otherwise, no one's really going to care a year from now.
0: Carmi levy with his technology analyst and journalist elon musk has officially bought twitter all right we'll see what color he paints it Carmi, as always thanks for the time have a great weekend be well
6: i appreciate it scott you as well
0: You're listening to the Hamilton Today podcast from 900 CHML. All right. uh, We were talking just yesterday about um, China and the Chinese Communist Party setting up police stations within Canada to monitor their citizens here, although they said it's to help them renew their driver's licenses. Uh, Now, the headline is uh, the Chinese president willing to work with the United States. But I thought he was a friend of Putin's. Uh, Let's bring in uh, Elliot Tepper to decode all this emeritus professor of political science Carleton university he's with us now elliot thank you for your time i hope you're well
7: oh thank you same to you scott
0: so what is going on here is this obviously just more smoke and mirrors uh playing putin and biden against each other what's going on
7: he has just concluded now at, uh, the 20th party congress where he has been confirmed basically leader for life yeah uh, there is no named successor he is perhaps the most Powerful leader China has ever had. Now, if you look back in history, he's, he has more stuff going for him here in terms of technology, military might, and so forth. He said, Okay, uh, I'm now in charge. The world has to deal with me. In fact, he's basically building up something he's calling or referring to as Fortress China. So he's turning around and telling the world, I'm here. I'm a reasonable person. I, I've got everything going my way right now. So let's talk.
0: So what's, uh, in and again, we know that he's now been grant, granted power for life, um, but why the, the friendliness as opposed to the aggressiveness we've seen up to this point before this happened?
7: I think it's, a, it's just another display of his power in his mind. He's suggesting that the world cannot ignore China. It cannot get along without working with China. And he being magnanimous and a uh, world leader that, Everybody should feel safe with you. Can you can deal with me? You can work with me, and I'm willing to work with the U.S. and other powers uh, to preserve peace in the world and prosperity. It's a very soothing message coming from somebody who has consolidated his power uh, over the party, the party over the state, the state over over its citizens. So I think it's a uh, it's an obvious ploy to take to say I'm not belligerent. If you want to pick a fight with me, that's on you. But meanwhile, of course, we know his behavior reveals quite something else. That they, just as a, many, many other issues, he's trying to close off the South China Sea and it, make it into a, a Chinese lake. It, it's absolutely uh, essential to be a free and open Indo-Pacific, as the phrase goes. He's trying to assert himself as a responsible major world leader. And indeed, he has a plan to be the world leader, uh, he wants China to be the world do- world's dominant power by 2049, but he has, meanwhile, uh, an agenda of his own, and that agenda right now more immediately should concern us in terms of not only working with Mr. Putin, as you suggested, but of course we're all worried about what he has in mind for Taiwan.
0: So, in fact, he's saying to the world, I've got the gig for life. Now you got to deal with me. Does that mean that his aggression has calmed in any way? Is he more comfortable in the position or is he as aggressive as ever and saying, you know, exactly as you said, you've got to deal with me now. I'm here for life.
7: I don't think there's any reason to think his major policies and that his behavior has changed in any fundamental sense. Uh, He's gearing up for the G20 meetings where he may be meeting in a couple of weeks now. He may be meeting with Joe Biden. They've met five times virtually. He, he may be meeting in person. Mr. Putin may be there. He's saying that I'm I'm somebody you need to work with, and I'm quite willing to work with the world on matters of mutual interest. That does include, by the way, uh, in his interest as well as the world's, things like climate. So flipping it around the other way, What is the world saying about him? What they're saying now about him is that uh, we've just been getting more messages coming out that uh, the United States has now basically officially declared China to be the number one strategic concern. NATO has had words more or less to the same effect. China, of course, uh, has neighbors such as Japan were uh, looking on with very grave concern. There's no reason at all to think he's changing his behavior. What he's changing is the type of messaging he's putting out, which is, uh, look, I'm a reasonable person. As long as you accept me for who I am and you're not trying to get in my way, I'll be glad to work with you. And uh, the world should be comfortable with me as a world leader.
0: Uh, has the West or anyone or is he accepted um, uh, the message that you know just because you're leader for life uh, doesn't mean anything's changed here? Uh, if you continue to be aggressive, you'll be dealing with the rest of the world on it.
7: Yes it's it's a it's a welcome gesture by uh, Xi Jinping after the successful completion of his coronation. The olive leaf to the world is you know a logical. Follow up from that coronation, but it does not in any way. Unless we have, it's possible. I, I, I want to put this out as a possibility that yes, this is indeed an opening to a a charm offensive by Mr. Xi Jinping. However, I really doubt that is the case. It's just his way of saying, "I'm here. I'm leader. Uh, get used to it. I'll be glad to work with you uh, on on mutual matters." But uh, you know, remember who's in charge.
0: He Everything's on him now, though, Elliot, including yeah. the fact that this country is still paralyzed with with COVID-19.
7: Yes, the downside for him of becoming really no other, its not there's no leadership uh, around him that has to share any part of any decision-making for better or for worse. So going forward, we now have Xi Jinping being held personally responsible for just about everything <laughs> that goes bad, as well as, the genuine successes that he's been offering to the people of China. He's saying, "Look, uh, look back at the great successes we've had. We have now moving into a whole new era. It's no longer the previous era of Deng, Deng Xiaoping, where we hide our strength and we bide our time. Those days are over. And the response coming back now, as in part because of the duopoly in, in the minds of Russia and China, that they are going to reorder." How the world works, and everything is now going to work in their direction. Uh, he's now able to say, uh, "I've got all the tools, I've got all the means, but he now, yeah. now also does, as you've suggested, have all the responsibility for what ca- what happens next."
0: Elliot Tepper with us, emeritus professor, political science, Carleton University. Always fascinating, Elliot.
7: Thanks much for the time. Have a great weekend. Well, thank you. Same to you, Scott. When there's
1: an issue, Scott is all in on getting to the heart of it. This is- Today with Scott Thompson. On Hamilton's news, today's talk. 900. CHML. All right, if you've been
0: watching the uh, testimony around the Emergencies Act inquiry, you'll know that things have not been looking good for the Ottawa police uh, chief, uh, slowly, who resigned uh, right after the uh, Emergencies Act was declared. And it appeared that uh, he wasn't listening to intelligence that was coming in and that, uh, you know, no plan B. And it, it, and people just didn't seem to be working together. Uh, today, with testimony, we're finding out that, uh, in fact, uh, he, he, he wasn't getting this intelligence intelligence, that it was somehow getting stuck in in within the uh, senior leadership, uh, you know, in sort of pointed fingers at his uh, operational deputies for uh, not working together and and bringing all of this information. So just a bizarre scenario uh, and picture that is being painted about the upper echelons of the Ottawa Police Service. Let's bring in Kyle Benning, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News, and he's with us now. Kyle, thank you for the time. I hope you're well.
3: Hey, Scott, doing very well. Thank you.
0: So obviously, Kyle, as we mentioned, uh, former chief, slowly getting, uh, you know, getting uh, kicked around pretty good on the in regard to the first two weeks of this. Now we're hearing that he was not getting this intelligence that uh, everyone was talking about. What's your take and in, in what you heard today?
3: It's very interesting, Scott, because there has been a whole lot of talk about intelligence, considering how long it took this convoy to reach Ottawa. There was trucks coming in from pretty much every corner of the country. One thing that Chief slowly today that stuck out to everybody was that there was not really any intelligence coming from CSIS or the RCMP. And you would think, hey, if you have people coming from Western provinces, from the Atlantic, Canada, from Quebec, from uh, as far south as Windsor as well. He said the OPP provided great intel in terms of the number of trucks, the number of people. Uh, sort of how angry and how upset some of these demonstrators were planning to be. He really sort of gave props to the OPP for, for the intelligence that they provided, but also slammed the, the federal agencies for the fact that nothing really came in, considering how long it took them to to arrive into the Capitol. So uh, some very interesting questions raised by Chief Slowly about how police forces and services sort of have to work together when there is, demonstrations like this on a national scale uh and uh, so
0: is it that uh he was getting help from the opp but not the rcmp or he wasn't getting the intelligence delivered to him that was available because he was calling out his uh, uh operational deputies that somehow he wasn't receiving all of the information
3: it was really interesting he laid out how there was a lot of Uh, interesting work going on behind the scenes. Even at one point, there was an event commander in place who sort of oversees everything that happened once the convoy reached Ottawa. And that person in charge changed multiple times. And he wasn't aware of that until after the fact. So it sounds like there's a whole bunch of communication issues at the top. Uh, Before, one of the first things that she slowly said this morning was how there were some retirements, some suspensions as soon as he became chief. So losing some of those senior members in his leadership team had already gone and that gave him maybe a, a tougher start in his tenure as chief. Then, of course, he also mentioned the, uh, the COVID pandemic, uh, some issues around the George Floyd and, and defunding the police movement and really losing that core tier of his operational team. At one point, he, uh, he, he's supposed to have three senior members under him, but at one point it was only one person. So it really sounds like there was a, a lot lost in communication, especially once different police agencies became involved, once OPP started sending more members. There was uh, issues among uh, police liaison teams who were meant to negotiate with some of these protesters and them feeling like they're not being used appropriately. So just a whole lot of miscommunication between police officers, uh, upper upper. Um, Uh, members of police forces and trying to enact a plan that would work. And we also heard today that he didn't really know how long this convoy would last for until the Tuesday following the first weekend.
0: Wow. And, and and again, that sort of conflicts with what we're hearing from OPP. Uh, and somehow the the information didn't get from them to him. Uh, do you think with what you heard today, and I know I'm, I'm sort of asking you to editorialize here, which we shouldn't do because you're a reporter, but um, is do you think there's any, ch- any change in the perception of Chief Slowly after this? Because obviously he was being thrown under the bus in the last few days. Has he explained himself, do you think? Is there, okay, well, let's look at this side, or is it... Is he tap dancing here?
3: The issue is, is that we've only heard from the lawyers from the commission. He has yet to be cross-examined yet. So everything that's sort of coming out is very mm. much in his favour. So uh, he is getting the chance to sort of explain himself, and based on everything that I've watched, he has explained himself. But there are two or three things that have yet to be explained. Obviously, any police chief in this kind of situation is going to be under pressure. But we heard in the last few weeks about OPP members sort of being uh, spoken down to, and uh, really aggressive meetings with, uh, with meetings with Chief Soli. We have yet to really hear that come out yet, but you can imagine that uh, the federal government's lawyers, the OPP lawyers, and maybe even some of the Boy protesting lawyers will ask Chief Soli under how much pressure was he feeling and whether his actions within those meetings when they are talking about working with other police agencies was appropriate.
0: Wow, this is as uncomfortable as watching a bad family Sunday dinner. Holy smokes! Uh, and it's just—we're uh, not even halfway through yet. Uh, Kyle Benning, with us, network digital broadcast journalist for Global News. Make sure you're watching Global News for more on all of this. Kyle, thanks so much for the update. Much appreciated. Be well. Thank you, Scott. You as well. All right. It's bad enough. We've got a Bank of Canada rate, uh, interest rate, uh, hike this week. Uh, also, uh, you know, inflation. We don't have to tell you anything more what that's like. Uh, now we're going to, now we're finding out that, uh, Christy Freeland will deliver the fall economic statement next Thursday. Uh, we should have some scary music. Da-na-na-na. Uh, what does that mean? Let's bring in Ian Lee, associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. He's with us now. Ian, thank you for your time. Hope you're well.
8: Doing well, thank you. Uh,
0: So we're hearing, uh, are we hearing a different tone with the federal government uh, in the last little while? Um, Christy Freeland saying earlier in the week, the government uh, is cutting back on costs. Is the tone changing here? What are you expecting come Thursday?
8: I believe there is a shift in tone. I think there's a split um, in the Liberal cabinet. I, I don't mean, I'm not trying to suggest there's civil war or anything like that. But there's clearly an emergence of, let's call it, a blue liberal wing, um, which is the term used for the business liberals or the more small C, conservative liberals, pro-business liberals. Uh, you know, in the past, John John Turner was in that wing. Paul Martin was in that wing. Um, and and on the other side, you've got the column, for want of a better word, the red liberals. And I'm referring to Stephen Guibo, the environment minister, and Wilkinson, uh, the natural resources minister. So. Um, what we saw in the last week or two with the announcements, where you had uh, Christia Freeland and and Melanie Jolie out promoting LNG exports when I uh, to to Asia, I, mm. I I almost fell off my chair when I saw that because I mean nobody can sugarcoat this or paper this over. She is saying 180 degrees in the opposite direction of what Gibo is saying and Wilkinson saying. So why I'm talking about that, Scott, is that I think. That the fall economic update is going to be very revealing, of uh, to put it in the Ottawa jargon of who's up, who's down, and who's winning. And uh, yeah. I think Christy Freeland's winning. I think that her vision, her worldview, is going to prevail. And it's a much more um, uh, grounded, uh, feet on the ground, uh, you know, prosperity, jobs, that sort of thing, rather than look. We've got to save the world because the world's on fire and the world's uh, burning up. Um, uh, point of view, and I, and I think I really do think that she is uh, she's winning, and uh, she's very highly respected. She, there's a there's,
0: it there's appears a though. We get a lot of mixed messaging, though, Ian. It, it, it's, you know, we've got to shut it off, shut it down. I mean, there is no compromise. There is no business case for liquid natural gas. And now right. all of a sudden, the all of the messages messaging is changing now. So, uh, like, if you're an industry, how do you make decisions on, on oh, any of this?
8: Listen, uh, Scott, you just hit the nail on the head. I, see I I think and this is my view and I, I you know I listen to the tea leaves and there's all because you can imagine in Ottawa there's always gossip every minute of the day because that's the business of Ottawa. you know the business of Toronto and Southern Ontario is to make money and the business of Ottawa is to talk politics and spend money and that's what we do in Ottawa and uh, but where I'm going with this, is I think that 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 split was there, or difference, if you want to do like the word split, that difference in worldview was there. Uh, I think that Stephen Gibo was always, and, and Wilkinson have always been very much on the left side of the Liberal Party. And I've, I've thought that if you look at Chrystia Freeland's career, uh, and I don't just mean in politics, uh, previously as a financial journalist with the Financial Times, a very prestigious uh, business newspaper, pro business newspaper. Uh, i i thought that, that that split was latent or implicit and now it's coming to the forefront and what i'm trying to suggest is it seems it seems to me that with the inflation problems the crisis on the government plate you know they're getting or they're really getting hammered we all know that inflation's terrible you know the economy slowing down and so forth that her star which was always strong before is really coming to the fore because they're, the government, Prime Minister, the cabinet, are increasingly seeing Christia Freeland as having a message that's going to resonate and, and, and be much more um, uh, salient with ordinary voters than pie-in-the-sky uh, ideology.
0: And you talked about the split, you know, in the left side of the party. That being said, they've got to deal with the NDP, so that pretty much pulls them uh, left. And on that note, Jugmeet Singh saying earlier this week from the NDP that because you know we're you know hell is, is, is we're about to hit hell in a handbasket here that they've got to start preparing and and supplying more supp- supplying more support uh, to those that are in need. So you've got Christia Freeland saying fiscal responsibility, or as close as she. can, can say to that. And you've got NDP right. saying we need more money.
8: You are absolutely right. That that is there. Um, I I, I my sense is, and and I, I realize, you know, I'm in a business school and I talk about economics and focus on that. But in Ottawa, when you talk about economics, you're talking about politics because public policy determines economic decisions, such as how much will the deficit be, you know, how high interest rates will go. And if they're fundamentally political, even when they're economic. Um, and and so it, it's inevitable that we have to talk about these things. And and I think that my sense is this, Scott, and I'm not a pundit, a political pundit. I mean, I'm looking more at the economic drivers, much more so. But I think that they've realized that, I mean, that, that the NDP does not have the same salience in the court of public opinion. One only has to look at the polls, which anybody can do. And uh, and and they. I, I'm sure they have internal polling that shows that uh, Christy Freeland has a lot of gravitas a lot of credibility. I mean, you know, you look at the other people on Parliament Hill, and she, you know, she stands alone almost. And uh, so, my point where I'm going is, it, it seems that they've decided. Look, um, we, we, I think what they're trying, what I'm trying to say is, they're going to the center. You know, they were going way to the left before to appeal to the. NDP Boy,
0: to you know what, Ian? Ian, that's 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 way more difficult for them to say than than it was even for you. What are you expecting coming this
8: Thursday, then? I think that we're going to see, I mean, let let me just give you one quick quote from Christia Freeland. I mean, I just about fell off my chair when I, and this was this week. We cannot support every single Canadian in the way we did with the emergency measures we put in place at the height of the pandemic, she said in Windsor. We cannot compensate every single Canadian. I mean, those are words that I could have said. I mean. You know, and so where I'm what I'm suggesting is I think they're going to go back to a more traditional centrist, you know, uh, Paul Martin, uh, Jean Chrétien. We're going to help the downtrodden and the people that need help the most. We're not going to just shoot money at the wall and like spaghetti at the wall and hope some of it sticks. I think they're going to go to a more targeted approach. She's been using the word targeting quite frequently lately. And that is a word that is used more by, uh, uh, by more centrist governments. So I think that they're going to pull over, pull to the center uh, and we're going to see it in this fall economic update this fall it's not going to be a, a pro ndp or a, 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 an update that would be strongly appealing to the ndp i think it's going to they're going to go back to the center because they're worried about the the criticisms of Pierre Poilievre but if they
0: were there in the first place would we be even in this mess
8: Ian? well that 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 to me I, I mean, I've been saying, as you know, in our conversation, Scott, I've been saying since Mr. Trudeau was elected that I I, I think he misread the 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 mandate uh, by thinking that there's a mandate to go hard left. I, I we're not a hard left country. We're not a right wing country either. Where you know Mackenzie mm-hmm. King famously said, "Lean to the left, lean to the right, straddle the center." And Pierre Elliott yeah. Trudeau kept talking about how I'm a member of the radical center. I mean, that's that's the, this country is we're in the radical center. We're not on the radical right and we're not on the radical left. And I think they're returning. The liberals are starting to pull back and return to their historical center.
0: Wouldn't that be nice? We're all hoping uh, Ian Lee with his associate professor, Sprott School of Business, Carleton University. As always, Ian, thank you for the time. Have a great weekend.
8: Same to you, Scott. Thank you very much.
0: Joining us now, Scott Radley. Scott Radley show coming up after the 6 o'clock news. You can also read him in your Hamilton Spectator. He's with us now. Scott, thanks for the time. hope you're doing well. I am, although I realized as soon as uh, Tom asked me what music we
9: should play, I thought I should have played Jerry Lee Lewis today.
0: Yes, absolutely. The killer passing away absolutely, at age 87. Yes.
9: It's amazing he uh, was still and- alive, isn't it? Like it seems like he was at his peak <laughs> he- a million years ago, but you know, it's time it's not that long since rock and roll really started. But anyway, not what you No, it's
0: it Absolutely. But, you know, I, I was talking to Alan Cross about this. Uh, everybody thought that he would die first because he was just he lived the life. He was the rock and roll guy. He was he was the killer. Uh, and he ended up out living them all. So there you go. Well, let, me,
9: let me tell you one quick thing. I know this is not what you want to talk about. But back when I was in university, uh, you know, we were dark. We were a little cynical. We were journalism students. We started a death pool and everyone put in 20 bucks and you got to draft two celebrities. And whoever's celebrity died first got to win the pot. And what did the person you pick? Who- the person who won died within a, or won within a week and a half when Rennie Levesque died. But I took the two worst picks in the history <laughs> oh, of picks. Man. I had Pope John Paul and Ronald Reagan, who lived forever from that moment. Wow! On. So yeah. Wow. So it's um, anyway a little. If if you need something to do this weekend, a death pool. I mean, it's you not know what? A little I dark, always felt- Halloween.
0: See. See, you came at this industry through journalism. I came in through the music radio industry. Uh, and, and, you know, it's always fascinating because I used to always say it's an interesting group that works in any newsroom, whether it's a uh, radio newsroom, whether it's a TV newsroom or whatever. There's just something different about news people that they will have pools on who's going to die first.
9: What is we that? We didn't we didn't root for de- well, we kind of did if we had drafted that person, but yeah. we didn't go out yes, killing Yes, you them. are we're rooting just, for them. I, I, oh, but only for one person. <laughs> All the rest we were hoping for a long life. So that may offset <laughs> it. I don't
0: know. <laughs> All right, so do you care if somebody uh, in uh, in Canadian politics uh, spends $6,000 a night of taxpayers' money on uh, a hotel room? $6,000 a night for five nights uh, London during the Queen's funeral, but nobody seems to know who was in that room. Well, I saw that
9: story, and I will say maybe. My answer is maybe, and the reason I'll say maybe is because I expect that London was really really busy at that time with the Queens, Oh, we you know, already already
0: made. I already put that to the Canadian Taxpayers Federation. They did a thing and apparently uh, this has been vetted and all the rates were basically the same. Okay, cuz that was I, I said be my- the same thing. It's, it's it's like Super Bowl, right? The rates are going to go up like 10 times. Well,
9: so my daughter by fluke ended up in England. She was in Ireland when Harry and Meghan were getting married and so she was so close. She says, "Well, we're going to take a little jet flight sure. across and go to the and the hotel rooms were astronomical. So i thank you. I have a friend yeah. who lived there. She stayed in their basement for a couple of days. But I thought, it, you know, that probably the same thing would happen here. Yeah. So if not, that was that was my caveat. If everything was incredibly expensive, I frankly don't expect the prime minister or deputy prime minister or whoever to stay no. in Motel 6. No, so, no, no. So if that was the price for a decent room at that time, I would say I'm not going to take issue with it. But if that's not, then I, I think then we should get an explanation if that's not the case. I, I didn't know that. Let me ask you this.
0: Um because you know my wife and I when we go away I remember one time saying you know what sometime we should pay that extra money and stay in that place that suite that room that whatever. And so you know this guy's a rich guy and I can understand him saying you know and he's well healed they he doesn't travel like the rest of us. Uh, you know what we want to the wife and I want to go into this suite. Uh what's the average rate and and then just pay the other the rest of it. I mean, you know, it would be a minimal amount over over the course of a year, he could probably write it off on his taxes. And think of the goodwill that would be if he could say, you know what, I stayed in the room, but I paid the extra three grand for it. I mean, why would you not do that rather than this? See, one of the the things that I'm always surprised at
9: in politics is that politics is so much about perception. So much of politics is about whether you believe yeah. it or not, in some cases, I am going to put my best side forward to show you how much I care or how much I can save or how much I can do for you. I may not, truthfully, I may not give a whit about you, Scott, but if I'm in <laughs> yeah. politics, I need your support. So I'm going to show that. Yep. I am always amazed that in certain cases, That seems to just go out the window because you're right. This would have been an easy one. The prime minister makes, if it's the prime minister, the prime minister makes 360 something thousand, I think, you know, to pay a few thousand dollars. And all of his travel is included. His food at home is paid for by the taxpayer. It's not like, you know, he has to go out. I know he pays some of it, I believe, but. It's like, you
0: know, if you're at Disney and you want to pay for the fast pass, it comes out of your own pocket.
9: Right, right. No, it just, it seems like, it seems like politicians are all about appearance until they're not. And often, it seems anyway, whenever... Now, this is... I don't think this Intercom. is a scandal, but anytime, oftentimes when we find a scandal, it's about money. Intercom. And it's like, I, I, I want to do everything that looks great. Until it's going to cost me something, and that's again, that's not every politician. And I honestly don't know all the circumstances of this. Maybe with 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 security and everything, they have to be a certain yeah. type of room, and that's what this. Yeah, you, you, you know, know what
0: I thought? I thought maybe it was like a you know like a suite. They got a kitchenette in there, and there's like six or seven of them bunking all at once. Then you know it'd be like a ski trip. Then you can you understand. You know what
9: was that, in there, Scott? You know what was in there?
0: A piano. heated floor. Okay. <laughs> Well, it was the same hotel that he was singing in the bar. Was that not his room? I don't know. Maybe maybe the bar was part of his room. I'm not sure. That's right. The suite includes the lobby.
9: Hey, now that is living. We need a hotel where they have a good lobby bar that has
0: karaoke in the evening. So whatever
9: that's going to cost us, bring it on.
0: All right. Enough of that. Scott Radley coming up after the 6 o'clock news. Read them in your Hamilton Spectator. Scott, as always, thanks for the time. Have a great weekend. Have a great weekend, Scott. Thanks for listening to the Hamilton Today podcast. You can listen to the show live weekday afternoons from 3 to 6 on 900CHML and online at 900CHML.com. That's it for us. Thanks for listening. Always appreciated. Thanks to Tom and Will for producing. Thanks to Diane and Dave in the newsroom. As always, we leave it to you, the taxpaying customer, to have the scary last word. Slotty admits he didn't
9: read his email fully for the Freedom Convoy, and I can relate with him. Anytime I try to read an important, urgent email, I have to say magic words, spin around three times, and click my heels to even open past the subject line.